Glad you guys are here. Want to welcome those who are online and uh, our other campus on in Kindred and you folks who are in the traditions as well. Grateful for you all to be here today. So um, Bethel Church, uh, this morning we're going to take a look at what it looks like to be obedient to the Lord. As the ushers come down, if you need a copy of God's word, uh, they'll, they'll pass those out. Um, if you've got a phone, iPad, whatever you got, you can scroll there. But it, I would say it is important that you look up the passage that we're about to study. Um, I think it's significant that you know that we're not making this up. So very, very important that you know um, where we are at in the scripture this morning. And so we've been in this series called uh, Discipled. What does it look like? And the characteristics and qualities of somebody who is a follower of Jesus. And so a few weeks ago, we looked at a discipler regularly worships together, primarily physically. And we took, we took a look at that. And then a disciple is dependent on God through prayer. We took a look at what that uh, 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 probably two or three weeks ago. And then last week we looked at a disciple displays the fruits of the spirit. And then today in this series, we're going to talk about a disciple is obedient to the authority, to God's authority in all areas of our lives. That's where we're going to be headed uh, this morning. A few years ago, uh, 2020, my wife and I uh, decided that we should make our lives a little bit more spicy. And the way to do that is we would thought we would foster kids. Anybody foster or adopt in the house? Put your hand up. Really? Okay. All right. I see some. All right. So, you know, if, if you've done that, life's a little spicy. And you maybe would say a few other words to describe it because it can be pretty intense. And so my wife and I, we went through the rigorous process. I mean, I feel like they mowed down acres of forest, the amount of paperwork we signed. I was like, golly. And then you get through all the paperwork and I think, I don't know if I'm qualified to raise my own kids. So, you know, you get, get through that debacle and you sign all the things and have all the conversations and the trainings. And then you get to a point for us was about nine months later, which I actually thought we were pretty aggressive with getting it all in. Um, and we get to the point where all things were certified and we're just waiting. And I don't remember how long it took, but uh, I was out doing some work and my wife calls me and says, hey, we just, we just got a phone call um, for our first placement. I'm like, please tell me you said yes. And she goes, well, I thought I should talk to you. And I was like, okay, well, great. And, and so uh, the phone call consisted of twins. And I was like, praise God, I've wanted twins my whole life. True story, I want twins. And so I was like, clearly this is what the Lord wants. And then we realized we don't have a place for them to sleep. So post on Facebook in the matter of a few hours, had a couple of pack and plays ready to go. And by that evening, we were placed in our arms and signing paperwork and bottle feeding at the same time at about 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. God forbid they couldn't show up at like 5 p.m., you know, just how it went down. And we are now foster parents of two littles. And so Maverick, our middle son was, um, he's probably three at the time. Maverick was eight, or, uh, Paisley was probably five. We didn't have little Thatcher yet. So we went from two to four, uh, which was interesting to say the least. And so, and to make things a little bit more interesting, the next morning, it was a Friday night, the next morning at 3 a.m., I left to go speak at a friend of mine's youth rally to serve him and a church on Laredo, Texas. And so my wife went to bed with two kids and woke up with four. And over that course of that time, uh, it was the worst season of our lives by far. And I don't say that to discourage any of you who, are, who want to foster, who are fostering, who have adopted, praise God, we need more of that, I truly believe. Um, but it was the worst season of our entire lives. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that you know, playgrounds were like a sinful place to go to at the time because of COVID. And so you couldn't get out and just all the things that encompass that season of our lives. And um, I actually thought, I genuinely, six months ago, a year ago, I was telling this, uh, we were talking about this and my wife says, you do know 
we only had them for two months. And I would tell people we fostered for like a year. And I genuinely believe that. And I still am a little partial to the fact that I actually think that's what went down. And my wife kind of was like, you left every day for work and I stayed here. So yeah, it was only two months. I'm like, okay, I trust you. I believe you. But the thing that was most difficult about that season of our lives, and if you've been in that season, um, there's a term that becomes like a safe haven to you and that term is called respite. And that's other people that show up, that get certified to, to relieve the tension so you can take a nap um, or just have some time where you're, you're doing more than just trying to keep everybody alive. And so we had about 50 people in our lives. And it was interesting to go through that process because everybody thinks you're a saint. And I'm like, homie, um, we are not saints. So it was kind of interesting. Um, and so over that course of that period, we had 50 people from church that said, hey, we want to help you. How can we help? How can we help? I'm like, that's great. That'd be awesome. I don't need your, I don't need your money. I don't need stuff. I need you to get certified and hop through a few hoops, background check, paperwork, all that kind of stuff. So then you can show up and pour into my wife and give her some space, some respite, so she can uh, rest. And in that season, we had, out of the 50 people, and I'm not exaggerating, we, it was maybe give or take a couple, I didn't keep track, but, but out of the 50 people who asked us that, only two followed through with that. And it was the first time. I didn't grow up in the church. I got saved when I was 15. And the church, I mean, Jesus saved me, but the church saved me. The people in the church, man, they, they, they saved me. And it was the first time in my life where I was extremely, extremely disappointed in my church. There we go. Okay. First time. You know, and I've been around long enough. Like, I've had people, you know, I've, I've said horrible things and I've sinned against others. They sinned against me. It's all good. But it was the first time I was extremely disappointed in the church. And then my mind got even more sinful. Well, I mean, I showed up in your life at 10 p.m. when your son or daughter needed something. I showed up in your life when you didn't have anybody to talk to and, and you didn't have anybody else in your life. So then my mind, as a pastor, my mind got extremely sinful. I had to repent of that. And my point in telling you this story is church life is messy. J joining a discipleship making process is messy. And I am so biased for the church. It is, it is God's way to transform and reach the lost. And I am all in, baby. But that was the first time the church deeply, deeply hurt my wife and I. And their hearts were in the right place. And so church, I just my encouragement for us today is, is to try to convince you of why discipleship and your involvement in, if Bethel Church is your home church, why, why your physical presence matters so much here. And why you joining us in this God-ordained process of making disciples is extremely significant. And it will be messy. But it's this God-ordained way that God wants to transform the world. And I want to be a part of that. And I want you to be a part of that. As many of you in this room are here because of, of the dedication and prayers of people who've come before you. What a rich history. What if Jesus was right? What if, what if Jesus was right when he commanded us to make disciples? And we've talked about what that looks like. 
gathering together, this fruits of the Spirit, uh, seeking the Lord in prayer. And today we're going to talk about obedience to the Scripture. But what if God's right? What if Jesus was right when he called every child who's put their faith and trust in Jesus to be a part of the discipleship-making process? You kids are part of that. What if, what if God was right when every one of you middle schoolers in the room who has put your faith and trust in Jesus, he, God wants to use you to disciple others? What if God's right with high school students? That God, if, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, what, 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 if, if Jesus knows what he's doing, what if you should be a part of that process as well? College age, young adult, what if God is right? What if the command for God for our lives is true? And you college and young adults can be a part of that process. Adults, what, what does it look like for you? Single, married, whatever phase of life you're in. What if God's right? What would it look like for you to be a part of that process? An elderly in the room, what would it look like for you? Called by God, love Jesus to make much of the Lord in your life. What if God is right? So that's my desire to convince you by my little bit of that I have in the power of the Holy Spirit that that the Lord knows what he's doing. And so faith in Christ should drive our obedience. We cannot have obedience without faith and trust in Christ. I would actually say, if you have obedience without faith, you are not living for Jesus. You're living for someone or something else. Obedience apart from faith in Christ is not obedience to scripture or to Christ himself. That is obedience to something else. You must have faith and trust in Christ in order for your obedience to be genuine, to be biblical, to be grounded on scripture. Obedience in of itself is not sufficient. Let's take a look at a man in Matthew chapter eight who had faith that caused great obedience in his life. And we're just gonna look at a few verses, Matthew chapter eight, verses five through 13. My goal is to explain this passage, pull out a few nuggets and... Um, help us understand what this means. So Matthew chapter eight, verse five says this. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Capernaum here was this place where the central ministry for Christ himself. Like this is where he did his earthly ministry that he was getting around, getting after it. And then this centurion, this soldier came up to Jesus and had a question. Now a centurion was a lifer in the military. He was most likely a Roman soldier. Didn't necessarily mean he ha- was, but he worked for the Roman government. He was a part of their regime. He oversaw roughly 80 to 100 people. So he was a man of authority. He kind of, he understood authority. And he was Roman and he was definitely a Gentile. And, and let me explain this for a moment. In scripture, there's this Jew-Gentile kind of conversation that takes place. If you, Jew up cult- if you, excuse me, if you grew up culturally Jewish, then you're a Jew. You understood a lot of the Old Testament. You had those conversations. Um, a lot of the cultural implications of what they did in the Old Testament, even the New Testament, you understood culturally. And anybody else is a Gentile. So most of us would probably be Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. So that's kind of what the scripture means by Jew-Gentile. And those mugs hated each other. The Jews hated the Romans because they occupied the area and they wanted to do whatever, you know, they, they didn't want this Roman government to to cause these rules and regulations. They wanted their king. They wanted the Messiah to come and they wanted free from the Romans. And so the Romans and Jews did not get along. So we see a Roman, a soldier approach Christ. It's quite fascinating actually. 
He approached Jesus with tremendous respect. It would seem that everything about this man actually would, would prevent him from coming to Jesus. He was a professional soldier and Jesus was a man of peace. He was a Gentile and Jesus is a Jew. But yet he approaches Christ. And none of this affected this man feeling comfortable to come to Jesus and ask for help. Fascinating. Your faith in Christ affects your obedience to Christ. Verse six, Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. For this particular man to use the word Lord emphasizes the fact that he is submitting to Jesus. And he actually uses this word later on in the same passage. So he's got a servant at home who's paralyzed. The the word here could be servant, young man. um, But nonetheless, there's this servant that is at his home and he's lying in bed and he's paralyzed. Now the story doesn't tell us how he got there. But the story, this man must see extreme value and significance in this guy's life. So he comes to Jesus on behalf of not himself, but this servant who is paralyzed and who is ill. Interesting. Your faith in Christ affects your obedience. He lays out the facts. He doesn't necessarily ask for anything at this particular point. He just lays out the facts of what is taking place and what he needs help with. He wanted help. We will actually see he knew the words and was so confident in the words of Christ himself that Christ just had to say whatever words and the disease and or physical issues that this particular servant had would bow down to the words of Christ and obey the words of Christ, even from a distance. Fascinating. Your faith in Christ affects your obedience to Christ. Verse seven, Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? pretty legitimate question, but that would have not been a response of any Jewish person. A Roman person would have been viewed as somebody who was unclean. A Jewish person would have been caught dead in the living room of this particular man's house. They would have not entered into this person's house at all. Culturally, they would have been ghosted, shamed, all the above. And that didn't bother Jesus at all. He's like, hey, homie, like, I'll come over. Not a big deal. Would you like me to come over and heal him? This does not affect Jesus. Jesus is not worried about what the world or the culture or getting ghosts. He isn't, none of those things are of significance and value to him at all. Is he aware of them? Absolutely. Does it affect his obedience and authority to God himself? Not at all. Jesus is willing to go in this person's home, willing to be ghosted by culture. And Jesus came to enter the messiness of our lives as well as the life of this particular man here. Your faith in Christ affects your obedience to Christ. Verse eight, the satyrian replied, Lord, so here's a second time, this submissive aspect to Jesus himself. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. This shows an astonishing attitude for a person of authority in the military to be so submissive to Jesus. He is saying he is not good enough to have Jesus as as his guest. Up to this point, we're not aware of any situation where Jesus heals somebody at a distance. So the faith of this man is tremendous. He seems to understand the barriers are between Jews and the Greeks. Just say the word, he says. No need to trouble, just, just say the word. Jesus has authority over sickness, disease, and it's interesting because he even has authority over time and space. He doesn't need to physically be there for this servant to be healed. 
Now, I've got some questions about this passage, like most passages that I study. Is he a follower of Jesus? I don't think the context tells us enough. I, I don't feel confident saying 100% that he has put his faith and trust in Jesus. I do believe that this centurion believes and is confident that Jesus is who he says he is and will do what he says he'll do. I do believe that. But maybe, I, we don't know. Maybe this man just has blind faith and he heard about or saw what Jesus was doing. It's like, I need him in my life because I value this guy. We don't know. I'm a little hesitant. Um, Maybe he just saw the miraculous works of of God, maybe from a distance. We don't know. I'm a little biased for this one though. What if somebody showed up in his life and shared with him about who Jesus was, took the time, energy, the effort, opened up, I mean, I guess a scroll at that particular time. I'm biased for maybe somebody showed up in this dude's life and discipled him. And then we find him there, a man of high authority, pleading on behalf of a servant to be healed. The context doesn't quite tell us, so we have to leave our mind up to a little bit of imagination. Nonetheless, your faith in Christ affects your obedience to Christ. Verse 9, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. He understands authority and how it works. He's familiar with the concept. He is under authority and his authority over others as well. He uses this experience in the military to base his belief on what Jesus can do. Just as he can command others and they do what he says right away, swiftly, without debate, without question. He expects complete and utter obedience as a man of authority in the military. So he also believes that Jesus, under God's authority, can give an order for the illness to be cured right away. He speaks of authority of a king and emperor, but he knows that Jesus speaks with the authority of God himself. Fascinating. Your faith in Christ affects your obedience to Christ. Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him. So the centurion says this. Jesus turns his attention as he often does and has a conversation with those who are following him and probably some of his disciples as well. You'll see Jesus do this quite often. There's a snare that arises and he uses it as an opportunity. Hey, you mugs over here need to listen to this guy. And so then he has this conversation with these guys. And so we're gonna see Jesus turn his attention away from the, the soldier and have a conversation with those who are following him. Interesting. Truly, I tell you in verse 10, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. That is a bold statement. The focus of this faith is Jesus. No other Jew had faith like this particular man at this particular time. Faith like this was not to be expected from a Gentile, somebody who didn't grow up in church, somebody who didn't grow up with traditions of understanding the Old Testament and the Scripture, somebody who didn't have the uh, scrolls uh, nailed to the doorposts of their homes. This was a man who didn't grow up with all those things. He didn't grow up Jewish. And yet his faith is confident in the work of Christ. And we're going to get to the, the primary, the primary uh, application for this particular passage is there are people who are far from God who have yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus. And they're going to have great and tremendous faith in Christ. Yet those who, un, who grew up around God or grew up in church or grew up understanding or grew up hearing those people don't have as much faith as some of these people who are far from God. That's the point he's trying to make. 
this guy has great faith and he doesn't know hardly anything about Jesus. Interesting. The point Jesus is making is why does this person who has no history as a Jewish person, no history of knowledge or things of God, and he has such great faith in Jesus? When there are many Jews who grew up knowing the scripture, went to church or technically synagogue, um, knew all about Christ, and yet their faith in Christ is not the same. Fascinating. A person far from God knows more about Christ than people who have been close to God. That's the context that we see here. Your faith in Christ affects your obedience to Christ. Verse 11. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. Now, people, this is where it gets really sweet. All right, this is where the, where the passage gets super cool. A large amount of people... And so Jesus is portraying the future where people from all over the world are going to put their faith and trust in Christ. There are going people that don't look like you and don't look like me. They don't speak your language or know your culture, but they have their own language and their own culture. There are going to be people throughout history who are far from God that, that the Lord is using believers all over the world here in Fargo-Moorhead. And, and it's why we support tons and tons and tons of missionaries. We kick out thousands of dollars to missionaries. Not because it's a good idea, but because it's God's way to reach the world. And so we see this image, this futuristic image to come where believers are seated at a table with guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Representing this feast, this banquet of believers, quite fascinating. To be seated at the banquet refers to the Messianic banquet that will be accomplished at the end of the age, a gathering of the Israelites, a gathering of God's people. Anybody who has put their faith and trust in Christ, they're at this banquet. So then my mind has to imagine a little bit. Uh, And and in, in my imagery, I'm closer to Jesus than you are, sorry. I don't know who who all's at the table. There's some people I know who are for sure gonna be there. What's it going to be like? How many people are going to be at the table that, that you've never met before? I'm going to be like, Moses, homie, I got a question. I know that Bernie Bush thing happened, but I don't get it. Tell me the story. Isaac, I know your dad, you know, tried to slaughter you one time, but then Jesus saved you. So like, you know, what were you thinking when your dad dragged you up the mountain and you're like, there's no, there's no other sacrifice. And then God brings a, a sacrifice or his horns are stuck in, in on a fence or, or some grass off to the side. Like, I've got questions. Like, I'm going to have a lot, a lot of questions at this particular banquet. Ephesians 2.12, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in heaven, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. That is a past aspect of those of us who are followers of Jesus. That is not our present reality. That was our past Your faith in Christ affects your obedience to Christ. Verse 12. Now, church, this is where it gets um, not so much fun, actually. But I feel the need just to explain the passage like we're doing. And so, but the subject of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This may refer to some Jewish people who, who expected to be in the family of God in the future But by extension, I think it also refers to those who pretend and uh, live a life of of some aspect of obedience, but yet they have never put their faith and trust in Christ. Even though many who are far from God and know nothing about the Jewish faith will begin to follow Jesus. 
There are many who are aware of Jesus, but won't put their faith and trust in him. And so they will never be obedient to him. Many who are Jewish by culture will assume they're in the family of God because of their last name. And Jesus says it doesn't work that way. And they will come to find out that their culture or their last name is not sufficient enough to get, give them an automatic pass into heaven. Just like you. Just because you go to church, just because you pray, just because you do godly things, or just because you give money, none of those things in and of themselves mean that you have put your faith and trust in Christ. Jesus is speaking to those who, because they're nationally Jewish and their relationship with God, would expect to be at the banquet. But due to their lack of faith means they have forgotten or, or put off their place. And I think this is still the case today. There, I think there are many in the context of the church who would think they're believers that they're really not. And I, I want you to know, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to convince you that you're not a Christian. I, that's not my heart and desire. I'm, I just think this scripture tells us to work out our, our faith. Not, not, the, the salvation that God gives us is free and it is a gift and it's amazing and it's precious. But I think a good question for us to ask ourselves is, am I a genuine follower of Jesus and how do I know? And how has the Lord worked in your life the last year? And if you don't have any answer for that, there's particularly, there could be that you may not be a follower of Jesus. I'm not trying to cause doubts. I'm actually trying to encourage you to ask yourself often, are you a genuine follower of Jesus and how do you know? That's all. No condemnation, no, uh, none of that. I, I just want you to know, be genuinely honest with where you are. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's okay. If you are a follower of Jesus, how do you know? That's all. Your faith in Christ affects your obedience to Christ. No faith, no obedience. I want to be clear, Bethel, this is saying what, I, what you think it is. Apart from a relationship with Christ by faith, you do not have a seat at the table. That's really hard to say. I don't, I don't find enjoyment in saying that. Christ, I, I even want to encourage you. I don't ever want you to think that that you should give up on pursuing somebody. Some of you, man, your grandparents raising grandkids and, and life hasn't gone the way you thought and you are pleading on, on, to the Lord on behalf of other people. And I wanna encourage you, don't give up. Don't give up on what the Lord can do. None of you, none of us are too far from God to be able to save us. And if you think that, I just wanna encourage you, look at the scripture. While we were dead in our sins, And so whatever category you want to place under how sinful you are, it doesn't matter. But God. Subjects of the kingdom will be anyone who does not have faith in Christ. And that, so I'm just going to explain this verse. Thrown outside, the payment for someone who does not put their faith and trust in Christ, you will be uh, cast aside, cast out. into darkness. And what this represents here is, is you are far from the presence of God. Weeping. The agony of this separation. Misery, pain, distress, grief. And it is a loud expression. And it won't be grief for what was happening in the past. It will be a present reality that will continue forever. 
I want to be very clear. I'm not trying to scare you into being a Christian. I have zero desire to do that. That is not what I'm doing. I'm just explaining to you what this verse says and your desperate need for a savior. That's all. The gnashing of teeth. Again, the agony of not being allowed into the presence of God. Misery, pain, distress, anger. Self-identification as a Christian is not sufficient enough for you to be a, well, let me say it this way. A man once said, hell is not a doctrine used to frighten unbelievers. It's a doctrine used to warn those who think themselves believers. Self-identification as a Christian is not enough if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus. And you too will be excluded from the banquet. But here's, I want to, and this may not be the best analogy, but I want you to imagine the table and there's chairs at it. And I think, I think I'm I'm okay with saying this. You've got a chair at the table with your name on it. I'm okay with saying that. But will you receive the invitation? So will you one day be able to walk up to the table pull the chair out with your name on it and have a seat next to Jacob, Isaac, I don't know, Moses, any believer that has come before you. And then I think to myself, well, well, who's going to be there that I met like one time and then we're just going to have like, you know, a 19 week conversation because we got the time. I think how many kids are going to be running around? I think of parents who are holding babies they've never met before. This is a banquet. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a vegan, so there's animals lying all over the place, all right? This is the imagery that we're given. And so I'm okay with saying, I think there is a chair with your name on it. And I want you to use it one day. Your faith in Christ affects your obedience to Christ. Verse 13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And the servant was healed at that moment. So now Jesus turns his attention from the followers who are, and his disciples. And now he gets his attention back to the centurion. He's like, homie, it's done. See you later, bro. It's all good. Jesus looks back and has this conversation with the centurion. Jesus answered the man's request. He asked for help and Jesus gave it. The healing of this servant is actually not at all the main point of the passage. The main point of the passage, who is the authority in your life? Has your faith in Christ affected your obedience? And if it hasn't, then I would ask you to ask yourselves and ponder in your heart, are you a genuine follower of Christ? Because by putting our faith and trust in Jesus, there should be some aspect of obedience. And that obedience doesn't save you, but it reveals the fact that you put your faith and trust in Christ. Who do you have faith and trust in? Because here's an unlikely person who had little access and didn't grow up in a Christian home. And he has this great faith. And you see the disciples and Jesus' followers and all the time he had to, he had to convince them. It was like, guys, like, don't you remember? Like, come on, I'm here. Like, oftentimes they forgot of the miraculous work of God and how awesome he was. Like, they often forgot. And as Christians, we're the same. Has your faith in Christ affected your obedience 
to Christ. I want to take a, uh, as we wrap up our time here, I want, to, I want to speak to the Christians in the room for a few minutes and then speak to the non-believers. As a church and as followers of Christ, we must know and put our faith and trust in Christ in order for us to have salvation. It's the same faith in Christ that moves us to be obedient towards Christ. It wasn't like I needed that then. Or, no, no, no. We need faith and trust in Christ all the time. And that should motivate our obedience to Christ. And so my question for you is, what area of your life do you need help with right now as a believer? What area in your life are you struggling with and you need to ask the Lord, God, please help me. Christ, I need help in this area. And I just wrote down a few things in no particular order or, or significance. I could have wrote down many, 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 many things. But for the sake of the time, I just wrote down a few. And maybe one of those things would be that Maybe the Lord's leaning in for you to to physically be here. If you're a Bethel church, to physically be here. You being here allows the presence of God, maybe I should say, to be maybe even more because you're here and the spirit of God is in you. And and people visit and they're looking for, uh, you know, a church home or or they think they're believers and they're not and you get to rub shoulders with them and you need to drag them into your life group. Or, you know, you've got a Bible study that you're taking place. Like, like, you need to be around so that you can have an influence on the lives of those who God brings us. No condemnation, church. No condemnation at all. But your physical presence here is crucial. It's important. The students I work with need you. The kids, that sh- they need you. Not because of you, but because of Christ in you. Your physical presence. Maybe... Maybe it's finding others to seek after them. God, give me the wisdom. Give me the discernment to be able to share my faith with my coworkers. You don't have to bring people to church with you. I think that's a good idea. But you could be the church and go to them. That's great too. Maybe it's baptism. Maybe you've been a believer for like 95 years and have yet to be baptized. And so maybe the Lord's leading you to be baptized. And, and, and in scripture, oftentimes believers were baptized soon after salvation. They didn't wait forever. And that's okay if you have. It's all good. God's gracious. But maybe it's baptism for you. Or maybe it's finding a way to disciple others, to join us as a church who are sinful, broken, and desperately dependent upon God, that you would join us in this endeavor to make disciples. Maybe it's your time. God, how would I use my time to make much of you in the context of Bethel Church? What would it look like if your life and your families have to revolve around the church? Maybe it's money. Maybe that's an area of your life where you haven't, you haven't leaned in on. Maybe the Lord's encouraging you to do that with your tithes and offerings. So we can send out more missionaries. We can plant more churches. We can help make more disciples. It is not about this place. It's about the advancement of the Great Commission and the gospel in all nations. Maybe it's your gifts. I'm totally convinced you receive spiritual gifts the moment you become a follower of Jesus and they are not for your own self-edification. They are for the edification of the church. And when I see the spiritual gifts laid out in the lives of believers, they were for the people around them, not for themselves. So maybe God's leaning, encouraging you to lean in and utilize your spiritual gifts in the context of Bethel to advance the gospel. Our vision is to be a grace-filled community known for making disciples who love God, love others, and serve the world. Gather with us, grow with us, and go with us, church. That's an oversimplification of who we exist and why we exist based off scripture. 
to encourage us and to keep us in alignment with why we exist. Because life is a vapor. Your life will be over. I often, tell, often have to tell myself, I'm going to be dead in 40 years, so I need to get after it now. Now, some of you, that may be like not be a great motivation. For me, it like gets me fired up, all right? So use whatever works for you. As we wrap up our time here, worship team, go ahead and come on up. Some of you know that you have a seat at the table. You are confident in your identity and your permanent stake in the gospel. You are, your hands down, you are ready to go. You know that you're a follower of Jesus and praise God for that. And while there is still time, while there is still a day, I would encourage us to get after it. What if every child who puts their faith and trust in Christ is called to disciple other people and they're getting after it? What if every middle school student who has put their faith and trust in Christ is called to make disciples and they're getting after it? High school students, same for you. College young adults, same for you. Adults, same for you. Elderly, same for you. What would it look like, church? What, what, would, what would Bethel Church look like? And not that Bethel Church is of, of high value, but God is and we praise and honor him. But what would it look like for you to join in this God-ordained journey with sinful people just like you? What would it look like for you to join the discipleship-making process here at Bethel so we can make much of God. And if you've yet to put your faith and trust in Christ, I want you to know it's okay. And I want to encourage you with Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. At this time in your life, the only thing you need to understand is that you are extremely sinful and you are far from God and the wrath of God will be poured out upon you. We've seen that here. But by you putting your faith and trust in Christ, the blood of Jesus will cover you in such a way that God will look at you and he will never see your sins ever again. And what is, what is your response? God, please save me. That's all you need to know to begin a journey with a relationship with Christ. So my one thing, verse, I would encourage you to memorize this, uh, Luke 17, verse five. It's a short one, so I'm, I'm a fan of short Bible verses. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. So church, let me pray for us. I want you to close your eyes. I want to put this imagery back in your mind for a moment. There will be a day where we will all stand, excuse me, that we will all sit at this table. And I don't know how it's all going to go down. But I, w- I want you to picture Christian in the room, walking up to the table, finding the seat with your name on it, pulling finding the seat that has your name clearly etched into it. And you pull that bad boy out and you have a seat in your home. And you look around and you'll see faces of people that that you thought and knew would be there. And I pray the Lord will, will show you people that you are just astonished that they made it in 
All because of the grace of God. So God, would you, would you soften our hearts in such a way that we will be motivated, encouraged to be 100% obedient to what you have for us. And we're all in a different place in our walk with you and some of us have yet to begin that journey. But God, I'm so grateful that you would even allow us to be in the family. So God, may you use Bethel Church for decades to come. And may when we all sit down at this banquet table, would we be in awe and in suspense and joyfulness because we're there and because of those around us who are there as well. So God, you use our church like crazy here in this area to make much of your name. So help us to be disciples of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.